Welcome to Stove Pipes Caribbean. Hop aboard as we travel together through a haunted forest full of music, magic, spirited conversation, and all kinds of weird shit in between. Today, we chat with paranormal author Barla Ventura. And welcome back to the caravan. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm also so sorry that I've been away for a bit. My own personal caravan, which was a Dodge uh, Avenger, was stolen right outside of my home, and all of my equipment in it, and that included all of my microphones that I do the podcast with, my guitars, my foot drum, basically everything I used to make a living was in that car, and some dickface stole it. It was terrible. Make sure you get comprehensive insurance. Make sure you get renter's insurance, and it will turn out fine, just like it did for me. I now have a new car. My new foot drum's being built. The microphones, slowly but surely, but I'm glad to be here today. We're going to be chatting with Barla Ventura, and uh, for those who have not listened before, welcome. Basically, it's a pretty simple format. I share some information at the beginning. I share a song that I wrote for the guest, and then the guest we feature is somebody that I just find interesting that I think you also will find interesting. And then I close up with a, an original tune of, of mine. I'm a one-man band, a songwriter. Uh, I have a budding interest in the paranormal, so a lot of what you hear on this podcast is going to feature that, but we'll have other things as well. Uh, and I'm also a soap baker. You can find me at Etsy at Stovepipe Soaps on Etsy. Pretty soon it's going to be stovepipesoaps.net, just finishing up the website. You can find my music uh, and podcast-related website at Stovepipe Magic. That's stovepipemagic.com. And I hope to add a Patreon to this as well. Don't really have a whole lot of news besides I hope you had a happy holiday season. I hope your vehicle wasn't stolen. I'll try not to uh, be too much of a bummer about that because it worked out, and I'm super grateful for that, and I'm grateful for all the friends and fans of mine who helped get a new foot drum to me and just to do a little shout out my good friend pete farmer runs a foot drum company at foot called farmer foot drums and it's located at footdrums.com. uh boy he really saved my ass when it came to the loss of this really beautiful instrument that i play that i have built a career out of and i would be remiss if i didn't give him a shout out so check out footdrums.com. all right and it's time for the conversation here is varla ventura so I ask that you be gracious on this song. I'm singing through my only remaining microphone, which isn't my best one, and I'm playing on a three-string guitar as I await uh, the replacement of my stolen one. But uh, we'll make it work. Here's a song for Varla Ventura. Varla Ventura is a mighty good woman. Yes, a mighty good woman indeed. She writes lots of books about ghosts and goblins that I recommend you do read. It was a good conversation I hope it doesn't scare you off Cause we talk about ghosts and monsters and vampires But we don't mention whooping cough There's no reason to mention whooping cough Barla Ventura, she's an author and a historian of things that go bump in the night And excited to have a really good conversation My first question for you is Do you believe in ghosts and have you seen any? And the answer is yes and yes. Um, I consider myself a 
supernaturalist when people ask me what's my religious affiliation. Um, I'm a believer in, in, you know, all of those things that go bump in the night. And um, I do, I do take kind of a um, folkloric, um, sometimes almost anthropological approach to uh, ghosts and ghost stories and um, their significance in society and what they, they mean to us both historically, but also kind of spiritually. Um, but absolutely, I have, I would say that I'm, my paranormal experiences, which um, have, I've had numerous ones. Um, so there are different types of, um, I guess, abilities in terms of having paranormal experiences. For some people, it's um, uh, physical manifestations. You can actually see a ghost. For others, it's um, you hear things or you feel things or maybe you sense things. And I've had kind of run the gamut. I have seen a couple of things that I absolutely couldn't explain. Um, but for the most part, um, I've had experiences such as something sitting on the bed and pressing down or feeling like the presence of something touching my shoulder, um, drops of um, icy death fingers on my forehead, fun stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried so hard to see things and I'm not, I'm a pretty skeptical person, very much agnostic at this point, but I want to believe that they exist. Uh, and I've had just some really slight things that make me think twice about it, but I've never, I've never had icy fingers on me as best as you can. How would you describe what it feels like to have a ghostly presence in front of you or even bearing down on you? Well, I'm very fortunate because for me, I have not had um, too many negative experiences. Most of my experiences with the paranormal have been um, relatively benign, really, um, or one thing I, I do want to point out, I, I mean, I think, it, I think there are other people who can attest to this, is that often the story is scary in the retelling, but in the moment, because your brain logic doesn't accept what's happening right. and is immediately trying to explain it away, and that cynicism, that skepticism, it does kick in. Um, it's like a it's like a survival um, method. So in that moment, you're often trying to just sort of like think logically or explain it away. And it's usually, it can be a few seconds, a few minutes, or a few days later when you really kind of get the creeps about it because you realize, you know, somebody tells you, no, I wasn't in the house or things right. along those lines. Um, but for me, you know, there have certainly been times when I've had, you know, something very close to the crib of my son, for example, that was a little like, ah, what was that? Right. But I never really felt anything too menacing but certainly i have had stronger experiences um you know they run the gamut there have been things that i could like probably dismiss like oh you know old house rattling windows mm -hmm. these types of things and then there have been things that i absolutely can't um you know, i can't explain away for mm -hmm. example i was talking about the thing on the foot of the bed i was lying in bed one night um, about, you know, drifting off. I had, a, I had uh, just turned the light off and I was sort of falling asleep, just getting into that nice cozy spot when you're drifting off. And I felt something at the foot of the bed. And my first thought was, oh, you know, that feeling when you're laying in bed and your cat crawls up on the bed and kind of holds the covers down. And it's such a nice feeling. Oh, yeah. 
Um, and then my second thought was, I don't have a cat. <laughs> so I kind of sat up and was like, okay, that's, that's funny. I must have just been sort of going in a dream state or whatever. And then, um, and then as I drifted off again, just a few minutes later, the same thing happened. It actually happened three times in a row. The third time I put the light on and I fell asleep with the light on. Cause at that point I started thinking it was not the ghost of a cat necessarily, but maybe something there. And I was alone in an apartment and it just, I don't know. It suddenly felt like there was like, you know, someone sitting on the edge of my bed trying to tell me something. And I just wasn't interested in hearing what that something was at that moment. Uh, you know, I was exhausted and I was that. So that, that was probably like, you know, kind of an example of something where it, at first it seemed logical and then it did sort of start to freak me out once it happened two or three times in a row. Um, but a lot of times you, you'll, I, I will have experiences where the hairs will stand up, you know, get, you get goose flesh and things like that. But I lived in a, a, I think it was a rather haunted sort of attic apartment in San Francisco. And I lived there for years and I actually lived in the front. It was one of those places where each floor had at one time been a full flat and then it had been divided up. So oh. I actually lived in two different apartments. Right. I lived in the front one and that's where I had a lot of experiences that um, involved like the, the bed, the um, things like that. And then, uh, but that apartment was in the front. And so I often attributed things I heard in the night to street noise because I was in the middle of San Francisco. So it was right. a busy, I lived in, you know, right in the Haight-Ashbury. It's a very busy neighborhood and all kinds of strange things and smells carry around in that neighborhood. So I kind of, you know, was like, ah, you could really dismiss a lot of those things. Right. When I moved to the back apartment, it increased. And actually, um, it in the, I would say the paranormal activity increased even a bit more uh, after I had my son. And the room that I had him in was the room right next to my bedroom. And when I had been um, kind of cleaning that room out, some of the paint peeled off. And this is like, this sounds like the beginning of a, you know, a VC Andrews story or something, but right. the paint peeled off and there's, um, there, there was old wallpaper on the wall that was like circusy. So it had been a child's room at one point. Mm -hmm. And, um, I had had, um, the first time I had my young nieces and nephews in that apartment before I was, had had my son, um, my sister was visiting with my mom and the three kids and, one of my nieces had an experience with, I call it the curious case of the haunted toothbrush. <laughs> and she had this toothbrush, this electric toothbrush that kept going off wow. no matter what she did. And we all heard it in the night. And, you know, my sister said she it ne it never did it again. She had put new batteries in before they had come down to visit. None of the other toothbrushes did it. And it never did it again. Once they left, it was just like, mm -hmm this playful i don't know if there was the ghost of a child my mom thought there was maybe the ghost of a nanny right and that she kept feeling the presence of like a child minder that had lived in that house at one point um so there were a lot of little things jingles you couldn't explain taps on the wall and when you have all of those experiences you you can explain each one individually but when I started writing my most recent book, which is um, called Barla Ventura's Paranormal Parlor, mm -hmm. and I interviewed a lot of people about their own experiences. I included haunted places, um, the history of uh, seances and things like that. I found that once I started putting all of mine into one place that I actually 
had had quite quite a few and mm-hmm. apartment in particular um you know it really kind of became the haunted nursery <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a little bit creepy but it does creepier yeah. after after i left right but when you're living but when you're living it like you know i mean most of us can't just move can't just you know in the horror movies you're always thinking don't go in there. You know, just why don't you just leave the house? But, you know, a lot of us are tied into uh, jobs, mortgages, mm-hmm. um, contracts, whatever we have. And we can't just up and leave when something scary happens. Right. So um, you learn to kind of process it. But um, not surprisingly, I don't scare that easily. You don't? Okay. So, um, You've probably uh, heard it all at this point, too, really as a writer. really kept me up at night. Right. <laughs> So let's definitely talk um, more about your uh, yeah, yeah. your book and get, give uh, a uh, we'll, we'll get really specific questions about it. But just to pique uh, listeners uh, interest and make them future readers, what would your elevator speech be about what the book is about? So this is essentially my paranormal parlor. This is the gathering place for ghost stories, um, parlor games that involve Ouija boards. Uh, the history of spiritualism and how that even relates to the women's rights and and the women's um, suffragist movement, among other things. And it's essentially my collection of uh, ghost seances and tales of true hauntings. So we'll we'll definitely dive into into the specifics you use the the term paranormal parlor and i feel like like is that a general term that you might find in other books about ghosts and spiritualism or did you make that up so i sort of used it as this umbrella term that is in a in sort of an homage to the victorian parlor games back in um during the beginning of the spiritualist movement which was the idea the spiritualist movement kind of really took took um, hold, especially in the United States, uh, from about 1840 to 1930. And, and the real core principle of the spiritualist movement, which still exists today and was kind of like the birth of the New Age movement, sort of came out of that spiritualist movement. But the real core idea of the spiritualist movement is that um, not only did we have, uh, could we communicate with the dead? Because of course, people have been trying to contact the dead since they realized they could die, right? Right. Um, but but that specifically, the dead had uh, messages for us. The dead had messages for the living, and we could learn lessons from those those um, messages. And that certain people in particular could be the conduits for those. So that became the rise of the medium, the, the person who was the conduit, the one who conducted the seance. And it was not uncommon for this to be part of a, a sort of sort whoever had the nicest, biggest parlor in town. And of course, the parlor being this sitting room that um, the, the upper, the mid to upper echelons of Victorian society they had these extra rooms right where they would receive guests and these became places where they would have gatherings it might be seances it could be discussions about um, new thought and ways of viewing spirit the spirit and and life and death um, it was often a gathering place it was you know people also entertained um they had funerals and and wakes in their parlors before maybe in a a town that they were the biggest 
place in town and there wasn't a funeral home. So the parlor actually became this sort of formal gathering place. To the idea of the paranormal parlor are all of those little games that used to be played, the, the Ouija board, the everybody everybody putting their fingers on, on the table together and trying to levitate it. All these kinds of what we refer to as parlor tricks mm-hmm. come from the idea that uh, once upon a time that parlor was used as sort of the central place. Right. Uh, this is just a side question because we definitely have some <laughs> some more pressing things we'll go over. But do you, a lot of people I've noticed in, in being interested in this personally – a lot of people are horrified of Ouija boards, including people who have really no belief mm. system. Uh, yeah. The, the person who I'm going to who I last interviewed on the podcast, who I will have released soon, uh, works for a society that basically tries to educate people about Ouija boards. He thinks it's a really important part of America and that it even influences what our modern day technology looks like. <laughs> and uh, but he, he said he's had the same thing where there's people he's talked to who don't even believe in ghosts, but won't even touch a Ouija board. Do you have any opinions <laughs> about why that might be? Yes, or... actually, I, I have also encountered that a lot of, let's call it Ouija board bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, people inherently think that the boards themselves, or spirit boards as they're more generally called, that they, they, um, that they, the boards themselves can be demonic or evil. Mm-hmm. And I think I am, am of the mindset that there are no evil boards Mm -hmm. there are just evil people (laughs) so uh, now one of the reasons i think they get kind of a bad rap is because i think initially if you can think back to like the original spirit boards that people might be using in um even in like pagan times right or you know early celts or any or um rune stones that the viking you know viking culture was using the norse culture there are a lot of means of divination and actually the spirit board was a means of divination it was a means of kind of connecting with the divine um or the you know divine dead oftentimes these things were not different that Mm -hmm. when you died you went into this afterworld you went into this other world it could be the world of the fairies the world of um other creatures other supernatural things that the dead um belonged there and so they were used as uh, a conduit for that when they became sort of more popular and a little more cheesy one could argue that un inexperienced people who weren't, you know, didn't have shamanistic qualities, who weren't trained to do it. Um, and we're talking like, you know, Parker Brothers put this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Like we're teenage girls. And I, I had one when I was eight years old. Right. So <laughs> yeah. I think you had more um, irresponsibility involved in it. And it became more of a game. And the idea that you could open communication with something and not know how to close it, a responsible seance would begin with an introduction questions and in the end you would thank the person who you made contact with or the spirit you made contact with and you would close that conversation Mm -hmm. if you're just freaking out and throwing the plants across (laughs) the room right there's that idea that you invited something it could be all a you know in your mind it could actually Mm -hmm. be that you invited something the other thing and, and the reason my mom took our board away 
when we were very young is that we started communicating with a ghost of a little girl. My sister and I were like eight, nine years old. And my mom started to suspect that it could be, I don't think she thought we'd make contact with anything, but when we started giving her details, Mm -hmm. she was worried that we had made contact with something that was just like, you know, it's funny what you said about our modern technology, just like on the internet, you know, and you're telling your kids that that person who says they're also a 12 year old kid living in you know Colorado or whatever they you know you don't know that would be like some 62 year old creeper yeah you have no way of knowing right right so just in that same way like here's this ghost of this little girl we don't know if that's what that really was it could Mm -hmm. be like some creepy old curmudgeonly minor demon spirit that got unleashed when they drilled too far in the well you don't know (laughs) (laughs) and when you have it become this kind of common thing that anybody has access to um, there's some danger there, but right. you know, I have actually, you know, um, one, one of the people that it comes up with a lot, it does come up in interviews and a lot of people who they don't do it. I don't use Ouija boards a lot myself anymore. Okay. I had had a couple of experiences where I knew that I was being irresponsible with it. And so I choose to use other means of divination. Like I'm, I'm lean heavy on the tarot side of things okay. versus the, um, but I'm not opposed to them at all. Right. Um, but I do think there's, there's so, there's a lot of layers to it. There's, mm-hmm. there's the actual real contact that you can make. There's the um, telekinesis factor Mm -hmm. where you get like-minded people together and they can move that planchet based on um you know subconscious thoughts right which is also an amazing phenomenon i mean i think these things actually all kind of fall under the same umbrella and then you do have some hype and some fear about it being um a way to communicate with the devil if you believe in the devil sure maybe you'll make contact with the devil but you know you 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 it's us that we're touching right. it. It's an inanimate object. Now there have been a lot of haunted objects in the right. world. We know we've heard about these haunted dolls that move on their own and certainly objects hold energy. So I'm not opposed to the idea of something having like a weird vibe, but um, I I think people who are afraid of Ouija boards probably should not use them. Yes. Because it's just going to make things worse. <laughs> right. For those of us that actually want to get something, something out of it. it. Yeah. Um and and traditionally like in the in the spiritualist movement and and we can get into this story a little bit more mm-hmm. as we progress in our conversation, but there's this wonderful story of a woman who channeled the lost novel of Mark Twain Mm -hmm. by making contact with the spirit of Samuel Clemens and using the Ouija board essentially as a typewriter. Wasn't it Jap heroin? Yes. Yes. I've read the book. That's it. You have. I have, yeah. You have. Wow, I think you're like the first person (laughs) I've ever talked to that's actually read it. It's not the best Mark Twain book, but I did have fun reading it. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's funny. So it's so great that you've read it because it does get into all of these things about like um, the times and, and using, you know, um, printing presses and mm-hmm. the main characters like you know apprenticing at a newspaper mm-hmm. so there's this kind of other element to it that's really fun yeah. but the i the best part about it is the introduction um, that she writes about how they created it right. but if you read the introduction you'll find 
Emily Grant Hutchings is the one whose name is on the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but she sat with a medium. It was the medium that had made the contact, according to her story, had made contact with this spirit before, and he had been looking for a scribe. And as the story goes, Emily walked into the room, and the spirit of Samuel Clemens told this medium, hey, she's the one, get her over here on this board, put her fingers <laughs> on, the, on the board. Yeah. And then they continued for a year yeah. to transcribe this, um, this novel, right. which is pretty long. I don't know. I'd say it's probably 80,000 words or so. And yeah. I agree, it's not, not the best. It's readable, unlike yeah. a lot of things from that era. Um, it's readable um, and you can, but I think I also think that Twain had such a distinct voice. It is not, um, it is not impossible to try and replicate that voice. You have an author with such a strong voice Mm -hmm. and there's some, there's quite a bit of evidence that you could write a whole book on this. There's quite a bit of evidence that she course. In fact, there are letters of correspondence between her and or Samuel Clemens, and one in which um, she asks him for some guidance as she's a journalist, and she asks him for some guidance as a writer to, like, really make her way, and his um, response was a little curt. So there's a lot of speculation that, you know, she was... uh, uh, Now, I mean, personally, I see it from the other side, but as... As is most, um, you know, most writing from that era, there's speculation that she was jilted or that she was just trying to make a name for herself. And I don't like say that that's impossible, but I do think that's a very sort of narrow view and a dismissive of um, her as a writer or just assuming that that was the case. In fact, this this book was written and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. The ghost of Mark Twain, the, 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 the fault really, so Emily Grant Hutchings found a publisher. They wrote this novel. She found a publisher. Um, and then Samuel Clemens's estate, which was his daughter and the publisher, the publisher actually owned the rights to the name Mark Twain. So when they published the book, they said, they said his name in, I think, the subtitle. It says Mark Twain. And that's where they went wrong. So they had, so one publisher sued the other. They had to stop production of the book and it actually went all the way to the Supreme court. And I found like an old, like microfiche, you know, newspaper article about in the headline, I can't remember it exactly now, but it was something like, um, uh, Ouija board goes all the way to the Supreme court or something like that. (laughs) And it did, it went all the way to the Supreme court and it was really because not because of whether or not she had chance, you know, it was the headline made it seem like this psychic parlor trick Mm -hmm. was being debated in, um, Supreme Court, but really what it was is it was a copyright infringement. That's why it went to the, to the Supreme court. If she had never said Mark Twain in the title, um, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not sure, but then again, if she had never seen Mark Twain in the title, she probably wouldn't have found a publisher. Yes. So, you know, it's kind of, it's just this great slice of it's history, alternate history. Um, yeah. early American literature. Yeah. Alternate history. Right. Um, and I think there's probably a lot more to it. And I've seen copies of the letters. I haven't seen the actual letters themselves, but supposedly there's one in like 
yeah, UC Berkeley archives um, wow. of this correspondence. And there's more to her story as well. Oh, you know, sure. she, she, what I know about her is probably just a small, um, small portion of like, you know, all the things that she did because during that time, you know, you're talking like, I think it was written in uh, 1915 or something like that. Mm-hmm. I have to check my own book. Um, let me see when that was written. But during that time, um, there there was also, in conjunction with the spiritualist movement, there was also quite, quite a, a great literary movement. And the literary arts, along with the psychic arts, were one of the few places that women could find a stronghold and respect right. in a society that really didn't respect them. Right. That really gave you choices, right? Yeah. Your choices were marry well, marry poorly, um, live a life of servitude, or live a life of, um, you know, having servants, I guess, right, you know, yeah. you didn't, or, or you could go the other way and you could become a whore. Right. So right. like you didn't, you didn't, really didn't have a lot of, a lot of options. Right. Uh, um, and of course, women that did publish often published under other names, including mm-hmm. the names of men in order yeah. to actually get published. Mm-hmm. So let's see, when did they do this? Um, it was 1917 that it was published. Okay. Um, which was, I believe he died in 1914, if right. I remember right, because she started the project in 1915 gotcha. and it kind of went from there and it took her yeah. a, a good, a good year. But what's really wonderful is all of these great details in the introduction of that story. Like, um, he's trying to tell her things as an aside, mm-hmm. so they're not meant to be part of the novel. <laughs> and so he... Yeah. He they he says I'm getting very tired of you um, confusing my parenthetical statements to you with the novel, so they they fashioned the Ouija board to have parentheses. And um, <laughs> I never heard that. That is it's, fascinating. It's great. It's great. And he he actually so he I say it. Um, this is one of the early volumes. Um, this is my favorite part. The work of transmitting, this is from her introduction. Okay. The work of transmitting that first story was attended with the greatest difficulty. No less than three distinct styles of diction, accompanied by correspondingly distinct motion in the planchet under our fingers, were thrust into the record. At first, we were at a loss to understand these intrusions, that they were intrusions that could be no doubt. In each case, there was a sharp deviation from the plot of the story as it had been given to us in the synopsis, because of course, you know, we gave them a synopsis first (laughs) after, after one of these experiences, which resulted in the introduction of a paragraph that was rather clever, but not at all pertinent. Mark regained control with the impatiently traced words. Every scribe here wants a pencil on earth. In other words, he's fighting against all of these other spirits who are trying to come through the board and tell their story. (laughs) So he's saying like, you know, this is how you'll know it's me. And um, there's just a a bunch of great stuff like that. So competition exists in the the netherworlds (laughs) amongst writers as well. That's hilarious. And I, oh, exactly, exactly. And it's, yeah, it's just like you can, good luck finding an agent, you know? (laughs) 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 But I, every scribe here wants a pencil on earth. Uh, I just think, I feel like that could be a t-shirt with like a Ouija board, like a planchet underneath it or something. (laughs) 
and you could put Mark Twain as the person saying it because that sounds like something. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Uh, quote him. <laughs> so you touch on something that, that I hope can really take over the conversation. I remember talking to somebody and I don't remember who. And it was before I was as involved with these kinds of topics as I am now. But I, I said to him, like, um, and this was a thoroughly secular person. Uh, and I said, like, is the reason we don't hear much about the spiritualist history? Oh, no, it was a professor at a college. And he and he taught and wrote about uh, divination tools from a academic perspective. And I was and oh, I, cool. and I yeah, yep. He was real into the Fox sisters. But I said, you know, it's sad that this history is not talked about in school. I think it's because it almost sounds like hokum. And he interrupted me. He goes, it has nothing to do with that because people love hokum. It has to do with the fact that it was thoroughly a pro-feminine movement. And that totally changed my outlook on this. And everything I've mm, read yeah. since then has been from that perspective. And I'm assuming you go over that a lot. And could you uh, and speak freely? <laughs> the, the less I say on this, probably the better. Speak on, <laughs> speak on um, that angle of spiritualism and all the things that you write about and study. Yes. Well, one thing that we know, um, you know, is that, of course, we have history through a very um, male perspective. Um, the men have been in power. They're the ones that have been tra transcribing the, the stories. And the other thing is that in a lot of societies, um, archaeologically speaking, what what artifacts that we found and as archaeology was really being recorded especially during the victorian era and it was being you know history the ancient history was being taught to students usually primarily male because women didn't um, progress in in onto college as often right. um that some of the things that women were known for um such as textiles and um some artwork and things like that that were tr that they don't exist in the archaeological record because they didn't survive the way a stone tool did. And so we we already had this one-sided or mostly one-sided view of um, ancient history that was influencing, you know, the modern times. The spiritualist movement it took place at a very significant time. First of all, it really took hold in the United States post-Civil uh, War. So you had a great many grieving women left behind without their, with no record of what happened to their sons, their husbands, um, and they're sort of desperate for contact, right? So that's where this idea that you could contact the dead and get some sort of message from them, you know, is Johnny okay on the other side? Right. That became um, more popular. Also, Mary Todd Lincoln was doing it in the White House. Mm -hmm. So there was this sort of popularity happening there. You also had, along with the spiritualist movement, and it wasn't only women, there were men as well that were part of this, that were part of a free thought movement that included being an abolitionist and being a feminist, being a suffragist or, you know, trying to get the women's right to vote. And very often, for example, there were these... Um, uh, I think it's Emily and Isaac Post, um, or was it Amy and Isaac Post? I'll consult my own book, <laughs> The Post. They were um, this wonderful couple that would host. They had um, Frederick Douglass as a speaker, 
they had um, some real dignitaries in the um, suffragist and abolitionist movement, and they also hosted the Fox Sisters. So with the spiritualist movement, you had people who were sort of more forward and, and maybe even radical radical thinkers that um, had, it kind of makes sense. Your mind is open to the idea that women can vote, then your mind would be open to other things. And so there was a lot of that taking place. So there, there were um, many, many times, now the Fox sisters were proven to have been, you know, faking it. But again, you, you have choices where women were able to find some success, some money, some freedom, and some power in a society that did not want them to have power. And the spiritualist movement became very strong because of that. And at the same time was quite dismissed. Mm -hmm. So you have everything from um, actual, you know, but with the Fox sisters, one of them basically outed the others for like five grand or something like that. And Mm -hmm. just said, oh, then we've been faking it all along. And that sort of started dismantling um, a lot of the, the belief in, um, sort of started giving it that vibe of like, oh, these are all just parlor tricks. Right. But the spiritualist movement itself and all of these things, like the psychic arts, the psychic arts have always been a way that women could have power in society. And that's why they were burned as witches, right? Like yeah. that's why, because they had power, not because they were poxing your cows. It was because they had power. They had people listened to them. They might have had land. They had um, healing abilities. They could actually help, and they were valuable, and more valuable than the mayor in some, you know, right, or the yeah. governor or sure. whatever in some situations. Yeah. So anytime you have that that um, power struggle, you also get the nice rumors going, like, right. oh, she's a witch. Oh, you know, that she she caused that um, mayhem. Or, and this still happens today, oh, well, she's just uh, overreacting. That, that's just a, um, you know, she's just making that up, um, you know, that she was asking for it. All those kinds of things are it's the same idea that right. um, these ways that women were communicating, I mean, if you can't get anyone to listen to you, then you say, hey, Mark Twain told me this. And now suddenly people are listening to you. And then they're listening. You. Yeah, so it's interesting to look at it, definitely very interesting to look at it from that lens of what was actually happening in terms of women trying to make progress. And, and of course, because you had so many men who had died in the Civil War, you did have women who were heads of households, mm-hmm. who were, um, you know, going to work. Just And you have that again. In World War II, you had this other resurgence of women, men going off to fight and women having to kind of step forward and take on these roles um, and just just kind of shifting the dynamics. But that is certainly true of the psychic, um, sort of the psychic arts in general. But the spiritualist movement, I mean, I can see it both ways. I do think there were a lot of people taking advantage of that collective grief. Um, male and female. I mean, I don't think that's gender specific. Um, the the desire to make a fast buck. 
uh, at somebody else's expense is, you know, probably as innate in human nature as love, right? So there's a survival technique in there as well. But I do think that many legitimate um, claims and, and just sort of, even if you aren't a believer that this person actually was um, channeling, um, you know, the ghost of some French dignitary or whatever it was, even even with that, even if you don't believe that, the there's still value in that story or there's value in what that person is trying to say. Emily Grant Hutchings was friends with a woman who... Um, published under the name Patience Worth. And Patience Worth was actually, uh, she was like poet laureate for a while. Um, She was, uh, wrote novels and poems. And it's interesting because there's something more to that story. They were both living in St. Louis. They were both attending seances. And in fact, Emily is the one that first brought um, her to a, seance herself so hmm. that she could experience this um, this particular medium that was most well known. Right. And she went on to um, publish his patient's worth and get, you know, quite a few accolades. Um, her real name was uh, Pearl, Pearl Coran was mm-hmm. her real name. And I think she was a bit I think she was a bit older than Emily. Okay. Like they, they had like 15 years between you know, them, but they were friends. They're basically from the same circle of, uh, of you know, St. Louis housewives. And they um, would attend these seances together. Now, Pearl had gone on to channel, meet this Patience Worth, which is a divine entity mm-hmm. that channeled novels and poems and that many people didn't even know they were channeled. They just thought they were these wonderful poems. And she would go into this trance-like state. Emily, um, you know, connected with uh, Samuel Clemens, and she did her thing. And then she was sort of la- later laughed at. You know, the book was uh, thrown from the shelves, and um, she was sort of uh, considered to be more of a charlatan. Right. Although there really was no, again, like when it went to the Supreme Court, it wasn't about whether or not she had actually channeled. That wasn't up for debate. What was up for debate was whether or not it was legal for her to mention Mark Twain by name because the name was a pen name. Right. If they had said Samuel Clemens, they probably could have gotten away with it. But Mark Twain was copyrighted and owned by the publisher. And I can speak to this myself because, uh, you know, I've seen that happen. A lot of people write under pen names. And it doesn't mean that the publisher owns the name but they do protect the right. They protect that copyright. So if you were to try and write under that name, um, then it will, you'd have to negotiate with the publisher. That's actually surprisingly mm. common. Um, so uh, why sometimes people don't choose to write under pen name. Right. So there's some, some backstory with their, um, their history and, and um, who was really finding success and, and who wasn't based on, this channeling kind of thing and you even you can see that today in the you know what's called like the new age movement or Mm -hmm. sort of like the the neo-pagan movement um the it it is a place where you find a lot of people who are very heavily um involved in feminism and the Mm -hmm. right you know feminist movement in the 60s and 70s especially Mm -hmm. 
found homes within a community that was goddess thinking versus right. God thinking. Right. And uh, men and women, not just not just women, but men and women who knew that there was an alternative way, whether that really was a belief system or just better company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you had people from you know, all walks of life that were united in this idea that, um, you know, there should be equal rights. Yeah. And I wonder, I've noticed... I've noticed that there's a definite renewed interest in the occult, in magic with a K, in, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who are witches who are public about it and have covens, uh, and and I think that's great, And um, but do you wonder, and I always say I won't get political on the show, but <laughs> do you wonder if a lot of that is not, I don't want to say response, because I think that gives too much power to the whatever jerk is making you respond, but like, you know, I mean, in, in the post-Trump world, in you know the relig- religious rights uh, uh, support of him, I it kind of makes you want to be less Christian <laughs> and to look into <laughs> other forms of spirituality. Add to that with you know Me Too movement and such. There's a definite uh, imp- as horrible as the things that have led up to that are. There is a renewed empowerment that's that I think we we needed very much. Do you do you think it's possible that the renewed interest in spiritualism? Uh, might be because in part because of that context or have you have you read anything that uh, might make you think one way or the other regarding that well so from my point of view because i've sort of been in this since i was i was sort of born into it really. right you know my mom uh, is a witch she oh um, she is i grew i grew up with um you know alistair crowley and yeah. Dion fortune uh, and tarot books and my reading material right. we had a ouija board when i was little my mom taught me to read tarot and lucid dream when I was a kid. So, and, and to this day, it's interesting because we were all exposed to that, but I think I gravitated toward it more. So to this day, my mom and I have really interesting conversations about, um, you know, like she's still trying to completely understand the Kabbalah, which is very complex. Oh yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she'll find these things, you know, now she's in her seventies and she's saying, Oh, like, you know, I found this connection to this and, it makes sense. And so I have had these kind of conversations with her since I was really a teenager and, yeah. and it expressed stronger interest wow. in it, um, you know, and would read cards for my friends and things sure. like that. Well, that's that's a um, very important uh, bit of autobiographical information that I'm glad you shared because that, that changes yeah, the nature well, of this conversation <laughs> in a good well, way. Uh, so, but I will say, um, so coming from that point of view, um, I have seen sort of the an ebb and flow. And then, of course, I worked in occult publishing for years okay. before I started really, you know, getting a lot of my books published. Right. Um, and, and, and I know a lot, I've worked as an editor with several, you know, rather well-known authors in the um, pagan and, and witch community. And mm-hmm. so I've seen it you know, it's been there all along. Of course, anybody will say like punk's not dead, right? It's been there all along. But I've got one really key, this to me, my point of view, the key factor in the real renewal of of interest and Mm -hmm. acceptance of witchcraft can be attributed to JK Rowling. Really? Boy, you have just perked the ears of three fourths of my listeners. Cause (laughs) they all love Harry Potter. I say that, and, and it's, in a, it's a wonderful way because, 
you know, I actually all these years didn't read the books. And now my son is eight and we've been reading the books together. And, oh, my God, they're so good. Oh, they're great. Because as somebody who knows the, you know, botanical names for all of these herbs that are used at witchcraft, mm -hmm. she and she's got this this beautiful, like, you know, there's this incredible Scottish lexicon of fairies and mm -hmm. changelings and pukas and all of these things. And because those became so popular, so the, they've been out for 20 years, right? 20 or even 25. Mm-hmm. So that's an entire generation right. who grew up not thinking that witchcraft was bad and the book should be burned. Granted, there were a few people, but anytime yeah, you burn a book, were, I go yeah. out and buy it, right? Yeah, I was, Tell me that you've burned it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we will buy 10 copies for our local library. Yeah. So. It, yeah, well, well, I grew I mean, I was back when I was, was still a Christian um, and I attended a a church that was heavily against those books. And then I went to an evangelical college and there was a professor there uh, who wrote a article uh, that was in favor of Harry Potter and saying all these great things about it and calling to task the people who criticized it. And it caused a uproar in that community. Wow. However, I, 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 uh, I think that a lot of people, because they heard somebody from their own tribe uh, speak in favor, it, it did have a net positive influence in people accepting it more because they, they the next admitted year, that they actually enjoyed, they enjoyed them themselves, it. right? Exactly. <laughs> like it went from an uproar to like, hey, these books are good. And uh, now, like, I feel like, except maybe pockets of truly weird people, <laughs> that most people have no problem with Harry Potter anymore. Like, you, it's not that uproar. It's like a classic now. It's been 25 years, you know? Well, so. and, and the thing is, is that no matter what you say, if you read them, she's a really good writer. She is, yes. So, uh, like, so then the literary aspect, the literary arts, like, you know, I don't believe in whale hunting, but I enjoyed Moby Dick. Right. Right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah. I'm not, you know, I, I didn't, like, get behind the story, the plot line, but I recognized the caliber of writing that was involved. And so she did a nice thing because not only did she bring forth this whole sort of um, generation of children that are reading and accepting witchcraft as something cool, mm -hmm. even subconsciously, but she also was an excellent writer and got all of these children reading these massive right. volumes. I mean, these books are long. Right. And these kids don't want to put them down. And so she really right. kind of, I think, really renewed um, many things. But to me, from the point of view as like, you know, working in acquisitions and occult and editing mm -hmm. um, and in that world and writing. After that, I saw a renewed appreciation and interest in what I would consider sort of hearth witchery. So these are those wonderful books of like 1,000 spells and mm -hmm. um, these sort of longer volumes of work um, that were, I don't want to call them witchcraft light because I don't want to say that I, I love those kind of books and I have a lot of them myself and I refer to them constantly. Um, I don't mean to say that they're not, but they're, 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 more, they're more accessible. So if you're a teenager and you grew up reading Harry Potter and maybe you have to go to church every Sunday, but you mm -hmm. feel like you're really interested in this other aspect of religion or, or witchcraft, you can get these books at the library and look them up. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I think that that sort of helped uh, form this. Right. Uh, it's like it de 
stigmatized it and sure. it became sort of more of a celebration because in her writing are are you know these really kind of accurate descriptions and things so i think that changed it and then out of that you have generation of people who that's their basis now they want more now they're getting in to try and find out more about you know the the religious experience of you know um the golden dawn or Mm -hmm. they're interested in knowing what and and, and like alistair crowley is a really interesting character to me same here yeah He's complicated because he says some things that are truly terrible <laughs> and it's hard to reckon with. But but he's, continue because I share your interest. Well, well, one thing that really so I was never a Camp Crowley kind of person. Um, I think my mom had like probably um, his book on the Tarot among her Tarot books. And um when when I first so I, when I read the book of the law, I didn't read it like I was going to try and initiate myself into the OTO. I read it because the story is that he walked into this pyramid and he heard a voice and he sat down and he basically channeled this long poem. And as a writer, that intrigued me. Later, I worked with. Um, an author on sort of like I, I read the equinox and the equinox um, is the volume of all of so he put out all of these journals these kind of regular journals and in these journals he would hide like he did a lot of literary tricks and he would review himself and give himself a terrible review he'd give himself <laughs> a scathing review That's great. Uh, you know and he'd call himself names and he would, um, you know, there were all these kind of little hidden things. And I began to understand a little bit more about him as a humorist. And that when somebody calls you the wickedest man in the world, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Right. You're not going to, you're never going to fight that. No. So he owned it. And he, um, you know, I, so there's always, it's one of those things where there's, you know, so it's a lot of, I mean, people think Marilyn Manson is, is uh right. you know this horrible evil influence and really he's a very very right. well spoken very intelligent very thoughtful and sensitive man so you know mm-hmm. i mean he's not i'm not saying he's perfect or anything but right. yeah. we we crowley was the you know the scapegoat of the, scapegoat. Of the times in many in many ways yeah. and was an easy target to point fingers at because um he actually did have the means to fight back yeah. but you know so he wasn't like a a, you know, a victim like a right. I don't know they're like a, like a witch that would be hung. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. There's there's a lot of other layers to that, and you know I'm 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 sort of more of a cursory scholar than right. an in depth person. I'm more interested in his um, uh, just sort of how he came to write and who he was as a writer than I am in his um, his sort of actual spiritual philosophy. Um, But one of the women that I talk about in in my book, I Mm -hmm. found out about from a great Crowley scholar, and her name was Ida Craddock. Mm -hmm. And she has a killer story. And there is an entire book about her if you're interested, because it's very, very, it's called the book that um, I really like. It's by a man named Beer Chappelle. Mm -hmm. And it's called Sexual Outlaw... um, Oh gosh, sexual outlaw. I'll have to remember it. I, okay. I, I'll have to look it up. But it's 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 sort of the story of Ida Craddock. Okay. 
Okay. And her, so I talk about her in my book, and she is in the chapter with all these other amazing women like Emily Grant Hutchings and um, Leonora Piper, who was examined exhaustedly by the Society for Cyclical Research in England and in the United States for 15 years they tried to poke holes in her channeling and never were able to. And she would channel all of these different people and she would drop into dialects and all of this stuff. And she was this, you know, Mrs. Piper. She was a rather well, well-to-do Victorian woman. And she was an older woman who had had a brain tumor and um, then started channeling all of these um, different entities after. Hmm. But anyway, um, Idocratic, so Idocratic, the reason that she was a sexual outlaw is that she was um, persecuted ex- extensively by Anthony Comstock and Society for the Suppression of Moral Vice. Wow. We're talking mid-1800s. I'll get the exact dates and I'll flip to it in my book here okay. while I'm talking sure, to you. Yeah. Um, thank God I have my book in front of me for all these dates because I forget them. You know, you write them. That's and why you, you write books. Leave your mind. You can remember them that way. So she, <laughs> she lived 1857 to 1902. Mm-hmm. And um, so she was an advocate of free speech and of um, the reason she was called a sexual outlaw and why she was persecuted is that she published a small publication that was called like the, the wedding night. And it was essentially a book of etiquette and a little bit of an FYI from a very Victorian perspective of what a woman was to expect and should know is coming on a on her wedding night. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind that this oh, was a time oh. when, you know, you had 20, 30, 40 year old men marrying oh. teenagers. teenagers yeah. They were expected to be virgins. Mm-hmm. They had no idea what to do, what to expect. It was terrifying. And in, you can read this pamphlet that she would distribute. She had a little ad in the back of like, you know, a catalog or a magazine or a newspaper, and it would send a dollar to her. Mm-hmm. And she would send you this um, this pamphlet, which um, was really, I mean, I read it, and she doesn't really get so much into the actual act of mm-hmm. sex, but sort of of like, you know, this is how to behave, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, it's very Victorian. It's very like submissive, really, right. oh, sure. but it's kind of an FYI, like, you know, you want to clean yourself and some things like that. And there's some veiled references in there that, you know, my modern mind couldn't probably pick up. Right. Right. But in any case, it was considered lewd as lewd as a woman's wow. ankle. Right. Sure. So she was persecuted. Um, by the suppression for moral vice, we're distributing lewd materials via the U.S. Postal wow. Service because she would, you know, mail these anonymously to these poor women who had no idea what to expect. Right, yeah. <laughs> and um, but the the reason she sort of ends up in the spiritualist movement and in this section of my book is that she actually claimed that she was she was not married, she had not had sex, but her all of her knowledge had come through psychic wedlock to an entity i think the entity was named um soft an angelic being Hmm. and she wrote this piece called psychic wedlock and this piece was about um sort of having this entity um you know teach her and show her things not just about marriage but about you know the spiritual development in general Mm -hmm. this psychic wedlock after um Craddock had died, actually, 
um, caught the attention of, so I have the quote here is that Alistair Crowley revered her. He, he said her work, Heavenly Bridegrooms, is, quote, one of the most remarkable human documents ever produced, end quote, um, because he felt from his uh, spiritual point of view and from the, you know, the, the OTO kind of initiation point of view that the knowledge that she had had to, in other words, with the OTO, you work up to being able to actually connect with divine beings, right? In right. witchcraft, or if you call yourself a witch, it's because you um, kind of already feel that, right? You already but feel it, right? It, with the with the OTO, you there are rules that you follow in order to kind of create this psychic development. Not that you didn't already feel it to begin with. I don't mean to say it like that, but right. it's it's more it's, it's sort of more strict. And yeah. you learn these yes, and you learn each stage, and you learn this stage in spiritual development. So they made her like an honorary like tenth degree or something after her, uh, just just based on this. Crowley declared that. And you can find in the Equinox his review of it, which is mm -hmm. totally cool. But by this time, I believe by the time he reviewed her and, and all of that, she was dead. And the reason that she died is that Comstock finally caught her. And he had her tried, and she was convicted. And her conviction was to spend the rest of her life in an institution Gosh. because she was thought to be crazy because she was distributing these materials that were wow. completely outrageous, right? It's just and we're not even talking about the psychic stuff. We're just talking right. about the fact that she said, you know, there will be there'll probably be blood on your wedding night. Don't right. worry. It's okay. Like, just right. this is how you should act toward your husband. It was very pro-husband, in my opinion. Sure. You know, she wasn't really saying anything that would harm the, you know, the benefits for the man by any means. Right. So that night, instead of going to, um, instead of choosing you know, to go and spend her life in an institution, she hung herself and she left wow. two letters, one letter of apology to her mother, you know, love and apology to her mother and one letter to Anthony Comstock. And it's just yeah. like, Hell yes. Burn. It is just a burn. Like, oh you know, you're gosh. wrong. You chased me for all these years, right. and this is what I'm doing, and you are the one that will suffer for this in the end. So it's really, um, and I believe in Veer's book, um, Sex, Sexual Outlaw Erotic Mystic, or something like that. Mm -hmm. I believe in that book, he has the entire um, letter in there. And he's also done some just written articles about her as well. But, um, yeah, so that was what I kind of used as my source. And he had actually told me the story, I think, uh, firsthand we met at a conference or something, and right. he told me the story. And I was like, what? Yeah, that is, <laughs> what? it's horrifying, so but it is interesting. In it from the, yes, and I was interested in it from the feminist perspective, right. um, less so than the Crowley's perspective, but it's kind of cool that there's this, like, overlap. And that's part of the reason her story is still told today right. is because people who are interested in – um, Alistair Crowley and the many facets of him, uh, that story has been resurfaced and she has been, you know, she's widely revered and, and respected. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, very interesting. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's... <laughs> Society for Suppression of Moral Vice. Sound familiar? Yeah, I, I was yeah. going to say, like, I've, I've heard in, in, uh, in involvement in fundamental circles, I've heard of so many, I mean, focus on the family, <laughs> but with a more, you know, a, a better name right. or, a, or more. Uh, PR friendly name, but yeah, those types of groups are all over the place. Uh, so, do you have time for two more pretty brief questions? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Good. I sure do. Okay. Um, 
so time flies. It does. So um, time flies when you're talking about uh, spiritualist <laughs> feminists. <laughs> well, I, it, that's right. This is how I want to. I didn't. Of course, didn't go to church. So this conversation is is its own form of worship. It's on uh, our Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was I going to say? Oh, um, what are some things about? What did you refer to yourself, supernaturalist? Yeah. I'm I'm sure there's some people who, who like think it's hokum or don't understand why you do it, but what are some ways that you think um, supernaturalism and just your studies of spiritualism and the way you grew up, um, what are some ways that have so specifically enriched your life that you, you not only cannot picture your life without it, but you also think other people could benefit from them if they, if they were to look into it themselves? Well, one thing that I think happens, and I, I love to study sort of the art of the ghost story, right? Like mm-hmm. a good ghost story always starts out with, well, I don't usually believe in these kinds of things, but <laughs> dot, 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 this happened to me. Right. And so there's this whole kind of thing that happens when you tell a ghost story or a really good kind of dark fairy tale where you're listening to the person, you're thinking, um, you know, what's going to happen next. And in that entire time, and it happens with good stories, it doesn't have to be a ghost story. It can be an excellent novel. It can be even a movie or, or um, something that you're listening to. You, you, when you're hearing these stories, you're experiencing this story. During that time, you have suspended your doubt mm-hmm. because you're lost in the art of the story. When you have a suspension of doubt, you then stop doubting. So then you can believe. And if you can believe, even if it's just for that moment, you are triggering something in your mind that opens possibilities. And that is the part of us that invents things, that finds cures for things, that creates remarkable works of art and literary work. So that is not just important because it's entertaining, but I think it actually does something to your brain that allows you to see the possibilities. Even if you're walking down the street and you're thinking there's no such thing as a Dobby, but then out of the corner (laughs) of your eye, as you're entering the barn, you see something, Yes, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's sort of, it it does influence, it colors your world. It's just like, if you watch the walking dead all the time and you walk by a cemetery, you can't help but think what would happen if, And and this is a place that we all need. We need it to survive our current times. Yes. But we've always needed it. We need that that art form. We need that way of expanding our minds mm-hmm. because without it, we're stuck. And we need to be able to be unstuck. Uh, that's how we have spontaneous thought and and ideas and um, inventions and things that actually really change the world. Right. So I really can. I personally, and there are cultures that revere storytelling for that very reason. Mm -hmm. If you look at it from a very scientific point of view, you are creating the groundwork and the encouragement for people to believe that anything is possible. Mm -hmm. So I talk about that a lot when people ask, like, do you really believe in mermaids? Because I wrote a whole book about mermaids. And it's like mermaids are like the one thing that a lot of people are really interested in, whether they believe in supernatural or magical creatures or not. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to imagine that mermaids are real. Right. And we need that. We need that. We really have to have that. It's, it, we can't have just a monotonous, monochrome, 
world um, because otherwise then we just, you know, we, we can't think beyond and we can't understand other points of view. So for me, growing up, hearing a lot of folklore, fairy tales, um, always being interested in other cultures and my mom being very interested in other cultures and their and religious beliefs and things like that, um, mm-hmm. it expands you. So I do think that what you can get out of a paranormal experience or a supernatural experience, um, you don't have to have that yourself. Sometimes you're just listening to the story, but it's that possibility. And anytime you have possibility, you have new thought right yeah the imagination really does change how you live your actual life in ways that we can't even comprehend and if you were to take away that element whether that be told through story or art i mean we you would literally live in a less colorful world and uh i mean that's that's horrifying (laughs) i mean that's the true horror story it most certainly is the true horror story but uh well put i was like here here on that one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> and uh, so, and my my last question is, what do you do for fun? For fun, um, well, you know, it's a wonderful time. I actually spend a lot of time outdoors, as much time as possible. Um, I do a lot of walking. I have a beautiful dog who actually has a cone of shame on right now. So oh, no. um, I take her for long walks. I really spend a lot of time. Now I live near a pretty big lake that has a nice path around it. Um, I used to walk on the beach a lot or just through the neighborhoods in San Francisco. I like to just get kind of lost in thought. And of course, I actually write for fun. I love writing. I love doing silly little writing exercises. And uh, yeah, you know, drink. (laughs) Depends on the time. It's a common one. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I also love to travel, and I I like to sort of work my research into travel. So okay. I'm always interested in ghost stories and hauntings. I've been researching a book about pirates, so I've forced myself to go to the Caribbean a couple times this year. You know, so I, I try and anywhere I go, I love traveling, and I love meeting people and hearing their stories and their stories from generations back, whether it's a folk tale or just what it was like growing up, you know, in Baltimore and, right. and you know, the 50s or whatever. So it's, right. um, yeah, I love that. Are you, is it, uh, is that what you do for a living, the, the writing? Yes, and editing. I do, I do some gotcha. editing to make Ed's meet because it actually pays better than writing. Better. Yeah, 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 I know, that's always the case. Yeah, yeah. And, and you mentioned being involved in publishing and such. That you're not, you don't, you're not uh, involved with outside of writing books for... And editing? No, no. I I I I freelance edit, um, but I'm not really doing that at all anymore on a regular basis. Now gotcha. it's primarily writing and um, uh, yeah. Excellent. The occasional editing project. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I I think what I would love to hear is if you could read a part of your book so we could really engage listeners to uh, get your book. <laughs> That's really kind. So I, I will read to you from the introduction. Um, I may skip a little part of it just because it's, a, a, you know, several pages. Mm-hmm. But I'll give you the introduction to my book. The book is called Varla Ventura's Paranormal Parlor, Ghost Seances and Tales of True Hauntings. And the introduction is called What Fools We Mortals Be. As I write these words, a sudden storm has come upon us, thunderclouds thickening the sky so that, in spite of the daylight hour, it appears dark. 
so dark, in fact, that the only lights in my room are flashes of lightning. It is a storm like those that horror writers conjure up to set the mood for haunted entrapment, the kind that keeps you locked inside your home in the company of ghosts. For most of my life, I have found the company of ghosts to be of comfort. Perhaps I am lucky that I have not been pursued by a scathing, loathsome poltergeist or made to feel that I cannot breathe by a desperate specter. And maybe luck has nothing to do with it. Maybe these experiences are just around the paranormal corner, waiting patiently for their turn to have me in the night. In this book, I recount some of my own experiences, along with encounters experienced by those I hold near and dear. You'll also find places to seek your own ghosts, from cemeteries to destitute institutions. And you'll learn the fascinating stories behind some of the most elaborate psychic salons of the day during the late Victorian craze of communication with the afterlife. I suppose you might say that I talk to dead people, or rather sometimes they talk to me. I am no professional psychic. I do not lay claim to the second sight and can't predict your future nor offer advice in the present. However, I've had enough encounters to say I, would be, I wouldn't be out of place at a dead man's party. When it comes to dreams, the dead pay regular visits. I am certain it is not a rare talent, but many nights I am visited by family and friends who have gone to the great beyond. Often they carry messages. These messages always make perfect sense in the dream, but in the light of day, frequently befuddle. The trick is to write the message down and recite it, just as clearly as they told you. It may not mean a thing to you, but it might make sense to the person you deliver it to. Twas just a dream. We use these words to soothe the frightened child in the night who is sure a monster is lurking inside the closet, just out of reach of the light. We use them to convince ourselves that that eerie feeling we have that something isn't right is just a dream we can't explain. But dreams are powerful tools. Whether they are prophetic warnings, get out of town now, or messages that allow us to question our actions in the waking world, there's no denying that we've all had a dream or two that has made us think twice. I can remember the first time I learned lucid dreaming, though admittedly my talents went downhill and now I must work harder to make it happen. I had a terrible nightmare and woke up crying for my mother. When she came to comfort me, she did not actually say to me, it's only a dream, go back to sleep. Instead, she asked me what I dreamed. When I told her I dreamed I was running in a field and I fell into a large hole that I could not get out of, she offered me this solution. Go back to sleep and have that dream again. But this time when you fall in the hole, picture Sir Dog, our family Great Dane, appearing with a rope that he drops down to you and pulls you out. And so I did just that. I fell asleep, dreamed the dream, fell in the hole, and was rescued. I was four years old. While ghosts might frighten some, I dare say if you've read this far, you're not the type to easily cringe. If you are easily scared, I can't assure you that nothing will happen. All I can say is to leave the light on. It may flicker, it may even briefly go out, but it almost always comes right back on again. That is wonderful that is absolutely wonderful and thank you so much for reading that and uh, uh thanks for having me <laughs> oh absolutely great. this is great time and uh on uh, social media how do we find out about you and your book and buy the book just yep varlaventura.net is my website um and i'm facebook slash varlaventura and then my books are available they're all in um print so you can find them anywhere books are sold. Um, they should be at your local brick and mortar store. You can find them on Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble, all those indie bound, all the places that you can, wherever you like to buy books, okay. they should be able to order them if they're not in stock. Gotcha. 
And do you have Instagram and or Facebook? Yeah, Facebook is Var- just Varla Ventura, and I do keep like links and things to um, interviews up there, mm-hmm. and I do not yet have Instagram. Okay. Right. I just haven't that. crossed over. I, I yeah, I, I, I probably should. That's but, okay. Um, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, excellent. Well, thanks again for joining us, and uh, best of luck to you. Thanks so much for having me. Yep. Bye bye. Boy, what a really smart and and interesting person Varla is. I'm I'm so happy that we got to chat with her and hear pieces of history that we really don't even think about. Uh, Ghost stories are so often just thought of as something we see in horror movies, but there's a whole rich history as to why we have them and the reasons we tell them. And boy, definitely check out her book. And uh, I hope to have her on here again sometime because I feel like she's just a treasure chest of that sort of information. So check out Varla Ventura on social media, as she listed earlier, uh, and just... uh, be sure to support her and get her get a copy of her book. It's a it's fantastic. Paranormal Parlor. So I'm going to finish off with a original song. Uh, speaking of alternate history and ghosts and witches, uh, here's another one of my songs about the Bell Witch. Again, you can check out me and my soap, my information at two places stovepipemagic.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Instagram is uh, at stovepipes underscore caravan. And on the Facebook page, it's just uh, Stovepipe. So this song is called Ghost in the Gutter. And I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you keep hopping on this caravan. And I promise there'll be plenty of uh, incredible adventures ahead. Fascinating people to talk to. And again, thank you so much for your support. Here's the song. Ghosts in the gutter. Monsters in the mud. Overworked witches and the Lord up above And some folks believe and some folks they don't Some are undecided and some they just won't And the furniture moves without warning The goblins rest under my bed There's a storm and the end, it is coming I better hurry and get myself wet I better hurry and get myself wet Voodoo that you do, I hope you feel protected From spirits before us, they're now resurrected So when you take a walk to the forest at night Better keep your gun near you And calm down your frights And the furniture moves without warning And the goblins rest under your bed There's a storm and the end it is coming You better hurry and get yourself wet Better hurry and get yourself wet. (laughs) 
Now go light a candle and place by the window. Say magical prayers to whatever God that you know. Maybe he'll help you survive this cruel night. Or maybe he'll just watch as the demons come inside. And the furniture moves without warning. The goblins rest under my bed. There's a storm and the end, it is coming. I better hurry and get myself wet. I better hurry and get myself wet.